Well, it's once again a blessing to be here and able to gather. We have learned what a blessing that is. Hopefully, that's one thing that can come out of these times that we're in is how much we need one another, how much we need to be in fellowship with one another. So it really is truly a blessing, and we can see that today. If you would, turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. I'm going to continue through the book that I've been working through. We're going to be in verses... Start it, we're going to start in verse 21 today. But before that, I want to give a, a brief kind of a recap of what I went over last time. Uh, some of you may have heard it. If you saw it online, um, then, then you got to see, then you got to hear it. But in, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, there was an amazing thing, I think, that Paul revealed about the about the um, situation that we come to when it comes to dealing with the law. So I'm going to go over this, then we're going to read what, what the text for today is. But what, what we're dealing with with the book of Galatians is we're dealing with a people, a group of people, a group of churches even, that Paul had planted based on grace, based on the faith in Jesus Christ, and now these Judaizers, these people who would bring people away from grace and turn them back to the law had come in. And he said this in verses 8, if you just back up, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. He said, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And the truths that came out of that, verses 8 through 10, were that Galatian Christians are in danger of going back to the slavery of their former Gentile pagan religion. Remember, most of the Galatians were pagans, idolaters. They were not Jews. But he's saying you're in danger of going back to that same slavery when you turn to the legalism of the Judaizers. It means that trusting in works for favor from God is the same as trusting in idolatry. Trusting in your own works for salvation is no better than paganism. If you begin to use the Jewish law to show God the merit of your virtue, or any other law for that matter, you come under the sway of demons and are no better off than in your former idolatry. Remember this, Satan is desperate to make us turn from God's sovereign grace. That's what he wants to do. Now, we know that he cannot do that, but if he can get us to sway, if he can get us to waver, then he can then he feels like he is accomplishing something. Satan and his demons specialize in taking the commandments of the law and alluring people in the church to make those commandments a basis of self-righteousness. That's what Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. And that's what I would suggest to you that we are dealing with every day somewhere 
in amongst Christianity and amongst other religions of the world. And I would say to I would I would even add to this that it's not just the law of Moses that becomes a law of self-righteousness. At least the law of Moses was God-given, and we've talked about the purpose of the law, and it does have a purpose. At least it was God-given. Man makes their own laws, their own rules, their own regulations, and you have to do this, and you have to do this in order to be righteous. And Paul's saying, no, that's the same, that's a, that, that you might as well be worshiping idols. And that's the theme of the entire book of Galatians. We saw later in verses 11 through 19 that Paul was concerned for their souls because they were turning away from the grace that he had preached to them initially. And then he he says he really wanted to be with them in person. And it almost seems like that would have been a good place to wrap up the book. I mean, he has covered a a lot of what he was going to say. He gets to that point. He, He talks about how he really wants to be with them in person and so that he, they can see his tone. He wants them to understand how much he cares for them. And it's hard to get that through in a letter. It's hard to, to recognize the love that he has for these people and the anguish that it's causing him to see and to hear of them turning away from grace. And so it, would, it looks like it would have been a good place to kind of wrap up the letter. But he doesn't. He goes on. And that's where we are today. I'm going to read verses 21 through 31. And I'm in the New King James today. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, again for this uh, beautiful day and the... The ability to gather with your people. Uh, God, I, I praise you for just who you are, the gospel that has been delivered to us, the faith that has been granted to us, the belief, God, the grace that covers us. And Lord, I pray, God, this morning that that grace, that your mercy and grace would be magnified. That if we if we depend on our own self-righteousness in any way, that you would take that away from us today and that we would depend on Jesus completely. And it's his name I pray. Amen. So as we look at these verses, it's necessary that we understand a term that we all hear a lot about. 
We hear a lot about it this weekend, especially as we celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow. Um, and that term is freedom. Or maybe you, maybe you would prefer free will. Basically the same thing, if you really think about it. We talk about living in a free country all the time. You've, you've heard recently, you've, I'm sure you've heard of our freedoms being taken away. But that's not the freedom that I want to talk about today. That's not the emphasis that I want to bring out. I want to, I want to put the emphasis where Paul does. And that is freedom of our spirit. Freedom of our, our own wills and desires. Free will or freedom, true freedom, is something everyone yearns for. But few of us have actually stopped to really consider what, what that means. So I want to talk about that just a little bit before we get into the text. The definition of freedom is the quality or state of being free, such as the absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action. Or it could mean the liberation from slavery or restraint or from the power of another, independence. So it's the absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint. And when you look at freedom, there's actually three main stages that you have to consider before you're really free. The first one is the freedom of opportunity to do what we can. The second one, freedom of ability to do what we desire. And the third is the freedom of desire to do uh, what will bring us unending joy. So you have to have opportunity, you have to have ability, and you have to have desire. I remember when I first started understanding free will, the free will debate, whether or not we have free will to choose Christ or whether we not have free will to choose this and that. And I actually think it may have been Dylan, but I don't remember. Um, talked about, well, if you really have true free will, I want to be an NBA basketball player. Can I be an NBA basketball player? Maybe, in, maybe a few years ago. No, I don't have that ability. I cannot muster up with all the will in the world the ability to be an NBA basketball player, nor do I have the opportunity. There are many out there that have the ability that never get the opportunity. If you understand sports a little bit, I, I, I follow sports a little bit, and you realize, like when you, you hear them talk about being an NBA player, a professional baseball player, or a professional football player, and, and these guys go to the draft and they get picked up by a team, and the difference of them becoming a superstar and washing out is inches, millimeters even. I mean, it can be an injury. It could be a week-long injury, and that week you're laid out, somebody passes you up. You don't have the, even when you have all the God-given ability to do that, you don't have the, the freedom of opportunity. So you have to have the freedom of ability, the freedom of opportunity, and the freedom of desire. So those three things put together makes you have free will. Now, the freedom of desire, you can consider it like this if you're going skydiving. Is Denise here? I thought it was, yeah, Denise loves to skydive. I've been skydiving. 
you have the ability, if somebody has taught you how to do it, you have the opportunity if there's a plane and somebody's giving you a parachute and all of those things. But you don't know if you have the you don't really truly know if you have the freedom of desire until you're up in that plane. And Denise will know this. If anybody that's ever been up there will know this. When that hatch opens for the first time and you're looking down and there's nothing between you and the earth but 5000 feet, you're, you're, you change. There is a difference then. And until you're there, you don't know if you have that freedom of desire. You may panic and go, no way, I'm not doing it. Or you may say, all right, this is exactly what I thought. I'm jumping. Okay, so that's the freedom of desire. Or there's a third option there, which I think probably happens to a lot of people in that particular case. And that is. I don't want to do it anymore. I thought I did, but now I'm here. I don't want to go. I don't want to jump. I'm not. No, no. But your buddies are in the plane with you and they're all looking at you going, ah, we, you know, and so you go anyway. Well, that's not freedom of desire. You were coerced, right? The definition of freedom is absence of coercion. So until you have all three of those things, you don't truly have freedom. So. Having said all that, now that you kind of have a little better understanding of freedom and free will, let's look at verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? The point he's making here is you suddenly have this desire to be in these constraints. It's kind of like when they left Egypt, when the when the. Children of Israel left Egypt and they started complaining. Paul talked about this last week. We want to go back. Well, at least we had food back there. Do you hear yourselves? You're free now and you want to go back and put the shackles back on and get the whips back on your back? No, that's what he's talking about here. Suddenly you have this desire that you want to earn your own favor with God. Or you want to make up your own set of rules? It's as if Paul is saying, you're not thinking about the whole picture here. It's impossible. It has never been done. The Jews, the Pharisees of the time, the holy men, right? And take from them all the way back to Moses and it could not be done. Why would you put a bondage on our people that even on on yourselves that even our forefathers couldn't bear? And remember, this is where I think people forget. James said you you to be guilty of one point of the law, you're you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. And that's what we forget when we make up our own rules. That's what we forget under the law of Moses. We can find, this is what man tends to do. And I know this from experience because I've tended to do it a lot. We can find parts of a law, parts of a legalistic system that we're good at keeping. We can find sins that we have no struggle against. And we can say, look at me. I I saw it in the prison very clearly. The prisoners were very extremely judgmental towards usually something they didn't do, right? But it was it was also very easily for them to be extremely judgmental towards like 
sexual offenders. Sexual offenders are in danger in prison. Why? It's because the prisoners are so honorable? No, it's because they haven't fell into that temptation. And we do the same as Christians. We find sins that we have no struggle with, and we want to condemn the people that struggle with those. But the problem is, James said, you're guilty of the whole thing. If we're going to base our salvation on that, and you tell a little white lie, it will put you in hell. A little white lie, a little laziness, a little don't want to get out of bed and go to work this morning, evil thoughts in your mind, right? Dishonoring your mother and father, any of those, and even it can be even little, but it's in your heart and it's sin to a holy God. And one little thing, one little point will keep you out of heaven and it will send you to hell. And Paul's saying, have you considered that? You want to go back under the law? That's what it does. It condemns you. Look at verse 22. And here's what I think he kept writing because he wanted to, he wanted to bring in this allegory. He wanted to bring in this truth from the Old Testament. He said, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. And so he's going to use this, this contrast in Old Testament scriptures to bring out the vast contrast of the difference between law and grace. And so I'm going to give a brief overview of the story. If you're not real familiar with it, for time's sake, I won't go there and read it. But basically what you had was you had Abraham who had followed God, had received the promise of God to be the father of many nations. Now, I always remember a preacher uh, saying he, he would tell the story like, well, what does Abraham mean? The father of many nations. And he had this basically kind of an oasis set up where his camp was and travelers would come through. So what's your name? I'm the father of many. How many kids you got? Zero. You're kind of old, aren't you? I mean, there was no doubt Abraham received mocking for his position. But what happened was Abraham had received the promise that his, his children would be innumerable. Like the stars of the sky or the sands of the sea. He had this promise from God. And all nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And it went on and on and on. And he had no children. Him and Sarah, his wife, had no children. And they were, past the age, they were getting past the age of childbearing. And what they do? They hatched a plan. Sarah gets with Abraham, says, look, you have no heir. We, we have got to do something about that. So what she do? She says, you need to go into your slave, your bondwoman. Her name was Hagar. And so they decide they're going to make an heir apart from God's promise. And he does it. He goes in and Hagar bears a child. His name was Ishmael. And that was not the promise. That was Abraham and Sarah lacking the trust of God. But, and Sarah remained barren for quite some time. I think around 12 years. I don't remember exactly, but um, somewhere around in there, 10, 12 years later, God opens Sarah's womb. And she is born the child of promise. The one that God said Abraham was going to have, his name was Isaac. 
And he never wavered off of his promise for a second. It was in his time, in his plan. Abraham and Sarah pushed the envelope. They could not wait. They lost their patience. They lost their trust. They had Ishmael. But God's promise was faithful. God's word was true. And and shortly after, they had the child of promise named Isaac. And so in verse 23, he says, but... He who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and of the free woman through the promise. So what's it mean that he was born according to the flesh? They got tired of waiting on God. Has anybody in here ever got tired of waiting on God? Has anybody in here ever been in that point? Maybe you're in that point now where you're waiting on an answer. You're waiting on a blessing. Or maybe you don't understand something that's going on. Maybe you don't understand, and we're in a very unstable world compared to what we've been used to. I am aware of that. And maybe we, none of us, well, I can, I can promise you none of us fully understand what's going on with all this stuff. But maybe you're in a point where you're unsure of what God is doing. Can I make a suggestion? Wait. Wait. On him. His promises will remain true. If you're a believer in Christ, we talked about it earlier in the book, you are a co heir with Christ. What do you have to fear? The inheritance is yours. Wait on it. Wait. But so we see that as if you don't wait, if you try to push it and do your own thing, you'll wind up like Ishmael. You'll wind up like Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. They were not happy with God's way. They lacked trust in his method and in his timing. So that's what it means to be according to the flesh. But it says, he of the free woman through promise. Isaac was born through promise. How? Even though Abraham tried to change it, even though he tried to change the agenda, tried to change the plan, tried to change the direction, God's promise held true right through the midst of his people acting foolish. And that's something that I can take a great comfort in because I tend to act foolish from time to time. But God's plan will remain. His promises will remain. God was faithful. Isaac was born just as God had promised he would be. And a matter of fact, he waited to the point, I believe, to the point where there was no doubt that God did it. And sometimes the hard times you're going through or sometimes the things that you're facing may be so that at the end of it, God can get glory for himself. Why would he do that? Because he deserves it. And he's the only one who does. And then verse 24 through 26, he says, Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all. So now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul is revealing something to us 
that we could not have known apart from the Holy Spirit revealing it. He's revealing a deeper meaning of what happened even with Isaac and Ishmael. They had a very distinct purpose that the Jews were aware of. And now he's even revealing it farther. They had another purpose, which was to show the vast gap between law and grace. Ishmael represents the law and Isaac represents freedom. True freedom. All the points I mentioned of freedom are represented in Isaac. Notice there in his comparison of the bondwoman that she is Mount Sinai, which if you don't know, Mount Sinai is where Moses went up on the mountain. And that's where he received the law of God, received the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the law. And he came down. And so he's, he's, he's comparing there Hagar to Mount Sinai. But he goes a little farther than that. That wasn't a big surprise. But when he says this, he, he explains that the current state of Jerusalem is in that same bondage. Now, I stopped and thought about this for a second. If you're a Jew living in the time of Paul, and Paul's, this is not politically correct. Let me just say that. Paul was not a politically correct guy. He just compared Jerusalem. All the Jews in Jerusalem, all the people still following Judaism and still practicing the Pharisees, the priests, all of them. He said, you guys are Ishmael. I don't think we can possibly understand what that would have been to them. That You talk about a slap in the face to a Jew. You're not of Isaac. You're of Ishmael. You can't get any more plain than that. In the first century, you can't. You can't get any more offensive than that to a Jew. And he says it plain, clear. Jerusalem is Ishmael. Jerusalem is following Hagar. He's making his point here that the law was not the end all. And that was the problem that many of the Jews had. And that was definitely the problem that the Judaizers had. They're trying to bring this law back in and intermingle it with Christianity. The purpose of the law was finished. Christ fulfilled it. There is no salvation in that stone. There is no salvation in Ishmael. There is no salvation in Hagar. And then... He, he, he brings up there the amazing point that the physical Jerusalem no longer mattered. The temple no longer mattered. The traditions of the Levites no longer mattered. The legalistic mindset of the Pharisees was finished. The Jerusalem above is free. He says this is the mother of us all. The mother of us all who have been truly set free in Christ. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4 verse 20. This is, this is the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. And she was confused and she was asking these questions and, and she says... Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. It was a big debate because you had the Samaritans that 
didn't worship in Jerusalem. And the Jews said, you have to go to the temple. You have to do your sacrifices. And that's where you worship. But look at what Jesus said to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The physical location of Jerusalem was no longer necessary. It was no longer needed. It was finished. And that's what he's saying here. We are of the true Jerusalem, which is of above. So how do we attain this true freedom I talked of earlier? How can anyone be truly free? And the only way this is possible, the only way you can truly have free will is by spirit and truth. It's the only way. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Apart from that, there is no free will. There is no freedom. You're in bondage to something all the time. We'll we'll go into that more in just a minute. But in verse 27, back in Galatians 4, 27, it says this. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. He's quoting Isaiah 54 here. Paul is. And so as we continue the comparison, what we see here is that the bondwoman produces many children. Hagar was fruitful. It was Sarah's womb that was closed. Hagar was fruitful. And, and out of Ishmael came a great nation. Right? God even promised her that. That He would make a great notion out of them. And there was many, many offspring to that. And it's no different now. As we look at now, as we compare the law and the grace, men of all ages have had the idea that they are right when they follow the law and outwardly perform its requirements. That is the dominating theme in the world. And it always has been. Look at any religion in the world other than true Christianity, and that's what it's about. It's about me doing good enough to earn favor with God or the gods or to earn paradise or to go to heaven or whatever it is. It's all about what I do, what I do, what rules I keep, what I am able to get done, right? All through history, that's the religions of the world other than Christianity. Christianity comes along. Sarah comes along. The child of promise comes along. And it says, you do nothing. You can do nothing. God does it all. Jesus Christ fulfills it all. That's the difference. Just as the Pharisees had created their own standards, you, you realize that a lot of times the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of breaking the law. It wasn't God's law that he was breaking. It was theirs. They added their own laws to the law. Almost doubled it on the amount of laws there were. And just as they did that, we have men and women doing it 
all across the world today, even within Christianity, with with what they call Christianity. We see legalism constantly. We see laws being made up. You have to do this or you won't be saved. You have to do this or you won't be saved. You have to do that. You have to go here, go there. It all fits into this same mold. It all fits into that same bondwoman. Although the law has many children, they are not free. They lack the freedom of desire. They're keeping these commandments because they feel like they have to in order to be saved. And if that's the reason that you're doing something, you're upside down. And you won't ever be able to do it. I remember I was there. There was a standard that you would set, right? A legalistic standard that I'm going to do this so that I can be in in favor with God. So that He will be pleased with me. So if I died tonight, I would go to heaven. And if you didn't have, if you had sins that were unrepented of, they were, they were, I was in fear that if I died with that, I would go to hell. That's how legalistic mind works. But that's false. That's, that's like jumping out of the airplane being coerced to, right? There's no freedom in that. There's no freedom of thought. There's no freedom of desire in that. The difference is when Christ enters in and gives you the Holy Spirit, and He now lives inside of you, your desires change. And if you're not feeling this, you may need to double check and back up and examine your faith. Your desires should be different. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. Far from it. But the difference is, now you desire to do what's right. You desire to do what's holy. You desire to keep your word. To avoid the sinful lusts of the flesh. It doesn't mean you're not going to give in to that sometime. Because we still have this fleshly body. But your desires will no longer be... It's not like you're fighting against good all the time. And that's what sin kind of leads to. That's how legalism kind of is. It's like I'm doing everything I don't want to do. And I'm not doing the things I really want to do. And that's why it fails. And there's sometimes it's just pressures of the church. Pressures of the Christian community, pressures of the society that makes you want to do certain things. The truth is, where are your true desires lie? Many have moved past conviction. And there's another difference here, too. There's certain things that Christians may be convicted of um, that aren't necessarily spelled out black and white in Scripture. And I would recommend to you that if you feel conviction by God to avoid those things, then avoid them. But that doesn't mean that you start putting that conviction onto other Christians. That's also another form of legalism. But many have moved past conviction into command with their own set of rules. But here's the problem. They're slaves. And as slaves, you cannot have a share of the inheritance. You will be driven out of the house as Ishmael was. In fact, the servants of the law are even now barred from the kingdom of light and liberty. If you're a servant of the law, if that's what you put your hope in, if that's what you put your trust in, if that's what you turn to, then you 
don't believe the grace of God and you're condemned already. And as servants of the law, and that's what Paul's saying, have you really considered the law? Because if you want to go back under that, then what you're doing is you're going back under the condemnation of the law. That's all it is. And which brings you back under the wrath and judgment of God. Then, on the other hand, as we look back at that in Isaiah, we have Sarah. The true free church, the true Jerusalem, the peace, the true freedom. And there's times when she looks desolate. There's times when she looks bare. She doesn't have the appeal that the law has for men, for fleshly men. Why? Because men want their free will. That's why it's such a big debate, right? Men want control. Women want control. They want to be able to say, I'm the one that's going this way or that way. They want to be able to say, look what I did. They want something to boast in. In their own actions, it's human nature. We all do it. Some are more loud about it than others, right? But everybody inside themselves, inside their flesh, wants something to brag about. And they want to be in control of themselves. And whenever you start saying you're not in control, people don't like that. But when you look at the free woman, the true Jerusalem, there's true freedom in that. Because when you submit to the perfect and holy God, he is the one that changes those desires. But Sarah doesn't make children of bondage, but of promise. And look at the difference in how Isaac was brought into the world and how Ishmael was brought into the world. Ishmael, completely ungodly in the way that it happened. First of all, if you remember what Paul taught several months ago, Hagar never even should have been there. It was a disobedience of Abraham to bring Hagar out of the war. She was a spoil of war, and he said not to bring her. She was a bondwoman, so she never should have been there. So it was conceived, the plan was conceived on sin. And then the very fact that he's not married to Hagar is against everything that God has taught us about one woman and one man being married, right? From the very beginning with Adam and Eve. And so they have this fornication relationship, this adulterous relationship in order to conceive Ishmael. And it was outside of God's plan, and it was outside of his timing, and it was outside of his promise. And then we have Sarah bringing it. Isaac, completely in God's plan. Abraham's true wife. God opened the womb. God caused it to happen. God brought Isaac into the world. And, that, and so it is with true Christians. We can have fake Christians all day long that are mustering up some effort to make themselves look good. But a true Christian is one that God brings in his timing, just like he brought, just like he brought Isaac. It is when God sets you free that you're free. That's the only way you can be free. It is when God opens your eyes that you can see. That's the only way you can see. For those who the Son sets free are free indeed. I mean, if you think about Abraham and Sarah, I'm sure after, Isaac, or after Ishmael was first born, they probably looked at him with pride, like, look at that. Look at that, God, we did it. 
We, you couldn't do it. We did. I, they wouldn't have said it just like that. They would have been, you know, smoother, slyer than that. But you know there was some pride. But when Isaac came, was there any bragging that they could do other than in God? Because Sarah was barren. She was past the age of childbearing, and he brought on this son. And then verse 28 says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a child of the promise. You're with Isaac. You're with Christ. You're a co-heir with Christ. And those who are born of the flesh, a little news flash here, will still persecute those who are born of the Spirit. It will, hurt. it will happen on this earth until the curse is lifted. Jesus told us it would. He said, do not be surprised when this happens. And why is it? Because that's what people do who think they're free but aren't. That's what bondage will always do to the free. The persecution can look a lot of different ways, though. Okay, so let's let's kind of make that clear. One way it happens is exactly what's going on in Galatia. Persecution doesn't always come with whips and canes. Okay, that is persecution. Putting Christians to death in other places in the world, that's the that's the pivotal, that's the epitome of persecution, right? I mean, it's terrible. But if that's not what's happening, that doesn't mean you're not being persecuted. I mean, it doesn't always happen come by losing jobs and being written up at work and those kind of things, although that is persecution as well. It also comes by those who claim Christ but are actually in bondage. Matter of fact, I feel like there's going to be a lot of that in these United States coming up. I, I think the people that are going to be the most Pers- the persecute the church the most are going to go in the name of Christ. It, it's what was going on in Galatia. They're coming in and they're saying, you guys don't have it. You're trying to stand on this grace alone stuff, but you have to keep the law. Um, I've seen it happen. They'll say things like, well, it sounds like you don't even believe in baptism. If you come from the background I come from and you say that I don't believe that you have to be baptized to be saved, the interpretation that immediately happens in the ears of those who hear that is, you don't believe in baptism. No, I didn't say that. I don't believe you have to be baptized to be saved. And then the undertones go, and it's real subtle. Well, he's a, and, and you'll be cast out as a non-believer. That's going to happen a lot. It's already happening even within like Baptist churches who are known for grace. That's what Baptist churches, that's what the Baptist denomination was founded on, is grace alone. But I promise you, you can go in a lot of Baptist churches now and hear things like, well, you have to do this. You have to, you have to walk the aisle. You have to, have you said the sinner's prayer? No, I never, I never, 
knew what it was. Well, you got to say the sinner's prayer. That's legalism. It's a, it's a different form. It's sneaking in. It's subtle. It's in the back door. But it's legalism. And we're going to face those kind of things. And when people are questioning you because you're not following the same program that they follow, then that's a form of persecution. Now, the other side of this, this is what you'll hear. Well, you're saying you don't, you can just go live however you want. You can't lose your salvation. You can just go live however you want. Yeah, that's the point. The difference is I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to live in my old sin anymore. That's the difference. That's what the legalists can't understand. And they get mad at you because you're saying, I have freedom. I can, I can do whatever, whatever I want to do. We'll do it. I don't want to. It's simple. But they get upset because they want to do it. Whatever the thing is. They want to go party. I want to go, man, I just miss partying. Right? I wish I could just go back and Smoke some weed and drink some beer and just live it up. And you're saying, I can drink. What? I just don't want to get drunk anymore. What? They cannot understand that because they still have the flesh ruling their lives. They're still in bondage. That's what the legalist doesn't get. And that's what we have. If you're a believer in Christ, you have this freedom to live. You can live for Christ and you can you cannot have to worry about keeping a law and going to hell if you have a bad thought. God will convict you of your bad thoughts. He'll convict you of your sin and he will correct it, but he will not send you to hell for it. Why? You're a co-heir with Christ. You belong to him. He's not going to let you fall. He left the 99 sheep to save the one. He'll leave the fall. He will save you. You're not going to wiggle out of his hand. And that's what the legalist doesn't understand. We still have commandments to follow. We still have obedience to, to keep. We have to follow this. But what's the difference? We want to. It's like having a, 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 a father that is completely controlling and abusive. He will make his kids obey. Why do they obey? For fear of the heavy hand. For fear of the rod. Right? If I mess this up, Dad is going to beat me. I'm going to stay in line. And they will stay in line so long as they are under the submission. As soon as they get big enough, though, as soon as they get big enough to catch the rod and turn it around, they're gone. Or you have the father that loves his children, raises them up and gives them what they need. And demonstrates his love for them and teaches them the word of God. And what his children will obey too. The difference is they obey because they love him. And the last thing they would want to do is let him down. The last thing they would want to do is disappoint him. That's the difference in a Christian and a legalist. The legalist is obeying because the rod is heavy and they're afraid of what it will bring. And the Christian will obey because they love the Father. So verse 30 and 31 tells us what to do. 
Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Cast her out. Get her out of the camp. The legalistic mindset that I'm going to do this in order to please God. I'm going to do this in order to earn my salvation. Get her out of the camp. And follow the Father. And love the Father. And follow the Son. Why? Not because of a fear of punishment. But because of a love for the grace that has been bestowed on you. Let's pray. Father, it is an incredibly humbling thing to be allowed to stand here and preach this word so unworthily. And God, I pray, let it never be that I would follow any kind of cheap grace, but I would always seek to please you, but I would please you because I love you. And that would be my desire. That would be my motivation is the love I have for you because of the love you had for me. God, I thank you, Lord, for this book. What it's meant to me, what it has done to me, what the eyes, my open eyes by reading this book even and, and the grace that you poured out on me. Lord, it is a true blessing to be able to stand here. And claim your name. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for all that are here. And Lord, I just pray, God, that there's a lot of different suffering in different ways in this time. God, I pray for your mercy and your comfort to come down on these people. And I pray, Lord, that if there's any here who, who are still following that path of Hagar, who are still following that bond, who are still trapped in that bondage of legalism, God, that you would just break those chains today as only you can really break them out of that. That you would cause them to see the grace of Christ. And that you would cause us all to just relish in that grace and to love it and believe it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.